We're continuing a series about who we are, the kinds of things that we want to mark the life of North Wake Church, and we've tried to express it like this. North Wake Church exists to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, to grow in love for one another, and to go in love to our neighbors near and far. At times we've called this the three great loves of North Wake, love for God, love for one another, and love for our non-Christian neighbors. All three, though, are fueled by and evoked by the one great, great love, the greatest of all loves, and that is the love God has lavished on us in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection for us and for our sin. Uh, We're a little over halfway through this series, working through this statement, and last week, Jake Mason taught on the second line of the statement, growing in love for one another. And Jake did a fabulous job, uh, though wrapping vanilla ice was not exactly what I had in mind for cohesion in the series, but I appreciate it. And I told Jake, I did grow up in church, yes, but I do know more than just hymns. I know some rap songs also. Uh, DC Talk, Jesus Freak, anyone? Hello? (laughs) Um, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, just Spotify, like 90s youth group songs, and you will experience a very special moment in the era of Christian church history. Yeah, not a, uh, yeah but Jake really did a, gr- did a great job at laying out the priority of loving one another. And if you missed last week, I hope you'll go back and listen to it. So today we're going to start talking about that third line in the statement. Uh, and I'm going to split this actually into two parts. Uh, part one, we'll talk about uh, today, going in love to our neighbors near as in kind of around this area, our friends and neighbors. And then part two, next week we'll come back and talk about loving our neighbors who are far, as in cross-cultural missions. So let me read just a bit from our vision and values document. We say, because God has loved us, we want to love our neighbor in authentic witness, meaning we desire to build authentic, loving relationships with our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and acquaintances. Building these kinds of relationships includes sharing the love of Christ with them by speaking the message of the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 5, that's actually the passage we're going to look at today. And then we want to purposefully extend these relationships to include those who have yet to hear about Christ around the world so that all peoples might come to know the love of God in Jesus. Matthew 28, we'll look at that next week. Now, if you are here this morning and perhaps you're just beginning to consider Christianity or you came on the arm of a friend or family member today, Uh, you're here on a wonderfully awkward Sunday uh, because I'm gonna talk for the next several minutes about why North Wakers are supposed to be trying to persuade you to become a Christian. So I know that's a little awkward because more and more, the whole idea, just the whole idea of evangelizing, we're trying to persuade someone to embrace your beliefs can seem um, disrespectful Offensive, maybe patronizing, uh, perhaps just downright narrow. Um, I was a high school teacher for a few years before moving here to Wake Forest. I taught at a Christian high school, um, and I taught a lot of Bible classes. And we had uh, more than just Christian students and Christian families. It wasn't just Christian students and families that came to our school, and that was no problem. We were glad to have them. Uh, But most class periods, I would open class by uh, praying for a country in the world. We had a kind of list or a database we worked through uh, where we'd talk about a particular country in the world, learn a bit about it, and then pray for for that country. 
And oftentimes I would have some statistics on how many people in that country were Christians. I would often end the prayer by praying that more people in that country would become Christians. Now, on the, this was the first day of class, I remember, and there was a new student there who was a high school junior. And she was brave enough to ask and to challenge me when I started this prayer time. She goes, or right after it, I think, she said, wait, Mr. Cobb, did you just pray that those people would become Christians? And I responded, yes, is that a problem? Because by the look on her face, you would think that I had just prayed for that country to get struck with biological weapons or something. And um, she said, yeah, I mean, isn't that proselytizing? I said, well, well, that's a big word, first of all. And second, let's talk about that. And so we talked a bit after class and she became one of my best students. Uh, she had a lot of very sharp, pointed questions and, and, and was a great student. But what I tried to help her see in the conversation we had afterwards is that, first of all, we all kind of try to persuade others to our point of view. Even if that point of view is you shouldn't evangelize others. So well, you're trying to evangelize me, you know, to, to agree with you. Uh, and that's fine. But secondly, and what I hope really that I can show you today is that the Christian posture or the Christian motive in attempting to persuade you to believe in Jesus Christ is love. Uh, magician and comedian Penn Jillette famously said that he had very little respect for Christians who don't evangelize. He said, because how can you believe someone's in eternal danger and not warn them? Actually, the way he said it was much stronger than what I just said. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to know that there's eternal life out there and not, not tell them that? Now, you may think that we're misguided in that and you may disagree with what we believe and that's totally fine. But I at least just want you to hear a bit about where we're coming from when we talk about evangelism. So, Let's look at our passage from the book of 2 Corinthians, and then we'll talk about how this applies to us as a church in love for our non-Christian neighbors. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll start in verse 14. You can follow along in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, because of the nature of this series, I won't be able to do a full, a full exposition of this passage like we would typically do and like I would like to do. So let me just pull out a few of the main threads in broad strokes about what it means to go in love to our nearby 
neighbors. First, I want you to see in this passage the motive for reconciliation. Second, the ministry of reconciliation. And then third, the message of reconciliation. So the motive, the ministry, and the message of reconciliation. First, talking about motives a bit more. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually writing to a church that is questioning his motives for his ministry. It seems that some people in this church uh, have turned against him and have accused him of using the church for his own personal gain. He spends a lot of 2 Corinthians refuting that, uh, but in this section, Paul just tries to, to bear his heart on his motive for ministry. It's Paul and Timothy writing, and they say, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's he say his motive is? He says it's the love of Christ. It compels us, it controls us, meaning the the very love of God displayed for us in Christ. That's what what captures us, is what drives us. It leaves us no choice almost. He's saying we're constrained by it to move towards others in love. Uh, We sang this song just a couple of weeks ago. I give my life to honor this, the love of Christ, our Savior King. I give my life for that. I'm, I'm moved by it. I'm motivated by it. And you may notice in the mission statement, the word love plays a pretty prominent role, you know? It's, uh, again, to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, to grow in love for one another, and to go in love to our neighbors near and far. Far. Why, why repeat that three times? Why make love so central? And I think the answer is because we think it's a central theme of the Bible. It's an essential theme of the Bible. Uh, you might think of it uh, like, like this. I'll use the piano. I got some rehearsal during the first service, so that's nice because I don't really play the piano. Seven years of lessons, Mom. Thank you for this moment right here. Um, if you think about the Bible as being written in a particular key, say the key of G. So that's a G chord, right? So that would be the root note or the, the key of a song. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not other chords, you know, other uh, to a song or other themes to, to the Bible. You've got G, but you've also got, you know, C. You've got D. But the root, the bass note, is still G, right? And there are, there are other notes and themes and chords that are a little darker sometimes. You know, the, the minor chords, uh, there's quite a bit in the Bible about um, suffering, persecution perhaps, um, judgment, but those things are not incompatible with still the root, with, with the G chord. So, all right, that's literally all the piano that I know, so I'm glad I could show that to you. And my point in saying that is that, wow, thank, thank you, fan club right there, appreciate it, um, that our, our mission statement is an attempt to bring out that central theme. And you might say to bring together the three great G's chord of the New Testament, the gospel, the great commandment, and the great commission. If you had to go to the New Testament for a theme, you would find those three things, the gospel, the great commandment, and the great commission. The gospel being perhaps most famously expressed in John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, the gospel. The great commandment, we looked at that uh, last week and the week before, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The third G would be the great commission passage where Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now here, Paul helps us in 2 Corinthians with that third G, the Great Commission, to see why we go. Why do we, why do we try to reach the lost, we say? Like, to get another notch in our evangelism belt? You know? To somehow prove ourselves as slightly more superior by getting others to believe what we believe? Or by somehow trying to wield more power in society by getting more people on our team? God forbid. We go because the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. We go in love. So love is integral for our church and for this statement because the Bible makes it integral for the Christian. I once read a sermon by the renowned, uh, now late deceased theologian John Stott. Now, John Stott, perhaps one of the most respected theologians of our day and time. So this guy was like Mr. Theology, love for truth and love for doctrine. But in a sermon towards the end of his life, he, he gave a sermon on the centrality of love for the Christian. And he said, you know, as a theologian, it would be really nice to have all the answers to all the questions about God that plague us. If we could comprehensively know all the truth, wouldn't that be awesome? To have a definitive, clear, unassailable answer to every question. We could settle every intramural debate that we have as the church, and we could answer every opponent that critiques us. And to be sure, knowledge of revealed truth is critical. But doesn't Paul somewhere write, if I had prophetic powers, and even if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Or Stott asks, well, what if we just had more faith, you know, as people, as a church, faith that would be unshakable through our darkest challenges and would shake the world for Christ? Strong faith, it's a needed thing. But doesn't Paul go on to say, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Or perhaps, wouldn't it be great if we could all just have more meaningful experiences of God, more meaningful spiritual experiences? You know, if our prayer life, individually and corporately, was so rich and vibrant that every time we met, we sensed God's presence in a tangible way among us. What if we saw revival break out in our day, you know? Spiritual experiences can be a good and powerful thing. Revival would be incredible. We should pray for it. But doesn't Paul say, even if I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Or perhaps the greatest need of our church is service. You know, people who are really willing to go all in, to commit 
to lay it all on the line for Jesus, who will go to the hardest places and do the most dangerous things for God, people who will witness to his name without regard for the cost. They'll give wildly over and above to where our church would never have a financial issue ever. Think of all the ministry that we could do. Think of all the problems that we could sort out. And that sounds good. <laughs> but doesn't Paul also say, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned at the stake, like as a martyr, as a witness for Christ, if I went that far, but I had not love, I gained nothing. So John Stott concludes, love is the greatest thing in the world. It is not an accident that the first and greatest two commandments are to love the Lord our God with all our being and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. For God is love in his own innermost being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united eternally in self-giving reciprocal love. Moreover, God has set his love upon us and he has come in the person of his son and given himself in love even to death on the cross. The Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts. He who loves calls us also to love. So love is the principle, the preeminent, the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. Where there is no love, there is no life, and there is no authentic Christian commitment. Holiness begins with love and ends with love. There is no holiness without love. That is the first thing I learned from my text. Love is the preeminent Christian grace. It's well said, but forget John Stott. The Apostle Paul concludes his chapter. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So for us as a church, love must be the, the motive, the driving force for all of our ministry, including going to our neighbors with the message of the gospel. Our motive must be love. And if it is, we'll make progress. Uh, author Stuart Briscoe, he wrote of an experience that he had in South Africa. He said, when the little woman met us at the airport in Kimberley, South Carolina, or South Africa, not South Carolina, what am I, I guess I just have travel on my mind. I just drove through there a few days ago. Kimberley, South Africa, she said, would you like to see the hole? I had no idea what she was talking about, but being terribly British, I said, we would love to see the hole. Thank you so much. She said, would you like to see it before you get where you're going to stay or afterwards? I said, could we please go right away? She said, of course. So off, off we set to see the hole. She was obviously excited about this hole. She talked nonstop about it. This hole, she said, is the biggest man-made hole in the world. Dug with just primitive implements, the hole was hundreds of feet deep and one mile in circumference at the top. People had come from all over the world to dig, and they suffered all kinds of deprivation, famine, murder, thievery. To my utter amazement, she said, it used to be a hill, you know? It used to be a hill. I still had no idea what we were talking about, but eventually we arrived at the hole. And there it was, hundreds of feet deep, a mile in circumference, slimy green water in the bottom. In a nearby ramshackle hut, a display of photos showed all kinds of people with little leather buckets, using an intricate system of pulleys and ropes, digging furiously in the biggest man-made hole in the world. 
I asked, why would people come from all over the world to a place like Kimberly to turn a hill into the biggest man-made hole in the world? And she answered, one day some little boys were playing on a hill, throwing pebbles at each other. And a gentleman walking past noticed the sun glint off one of those pebbles. He asked the kids to throw one to him, and when he caught it, he recognized a diamond. So the whole hill was covered in diamonds. He said, I guess that's how you get people to come from all over the world with primitive implements to turn a hill into the biggest man-made hole in the world. It's called motivation. And you know, we spend a lot of time in the church talking about methods, materials, about money, and manpower. But without motivation, you don't have much at all. The love of Christ is ours. That's what motivates us to go. So we go in love to our nearby neighbors. And I should clarify, I don't mean love like in the gushy modern sense of just mere sentimentality or warm fuzzy feelings as in we become the church that just brings people fruit baskets in love, but rather that we follow the biblical portrait of love that is marked by a steadfast commitment to the good of another, an affection that is tough as nails, a willingness to have hard conversations and is ultimately portrayed by our God hanging on a cross in agony as he dies for his enemies. That's the type of gritty love that we're talking about. So that's our motive, the love of Christ. But what should that love motivate us to do exactly? So we're motivated, great, what, what do we do? Well, that's the ministry of reconciliation. Look back at the passage with me, verse 16. Paul says, from now on then, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't just look at them through normal standards or worldly eyes. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Skip verse 19 for now, look at verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Christians have been given a ministry of seeing others reconciled to God which of course implies that not everyone is reconciled to him. Many are still estranged, cut off. But God desires that they would be reconciled to him. Thus, he's making an appeal to the world through us, which is an astounding, it's an astounding privilege. If you stop and think about this, God would like to make his heartfelt appeal to the world to be reconciled through the church, which means we're his ambassadors, the passage says, which means what's an ambassador? It's, we're, we're a representative. And an ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign country but uh, gives input and represents their home country in a different territory. They represent their government or homeland in another territory. Now, it's fascinating to me as I did some reading about ambassadors in the ancient world uh, in the Roman Empire, apparently the Roman emperor did not send out ambassadors to other countries like to make peace or solicit ambassadors from other countries. They just destroyed them and then set up governors. They didn't really 
create ambassadors. Um, people from those lands would have to try to find their best and brightest, and they would send them to Rome to advocate for their homeland. Um, Augustus actually does some humble bragging about this in one of his writings. Actually, it's not humble bragging. He's just straight bragging, I think. Uh, but he says, royal embassies from India, never previously seen before by any Roman general, were often sent to me. Our friendship was sought through ambassadors by the Bastarnians and Scythians and by the kings of the Samartians, who live on both sides of the Don River, by the kings of the Albanians, the Iberians, and of the Medes. And he goes kind of on and on about all these places and people that sent ambassadors to him to try to you know, make terms for peace when Rome blazed through their, their country. They all came to me, he says. How different God is. Rather than waiting for us to come to him, he takes the initiative to send ambassadors throughout the world with a message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. So what does it look like for us to be those ambassadors? So here's where I'd like to express two of the four values that sit under love for neighbor. Uh, I'll talk about the next two next week. So here's just the two that uh, speak about loving our neighbor. First, we speak about Jesus. Second, we serve our neighbors. So first, we speak about Jesus. So we believe that hearing the good news of Jesus on the lips of God's people is the way that others will come to be reconciled to God. Therefore, verbal witness of the gospel is critical. This verbal witness is not contrary to the need for exemplary Christian living. In fact, our lives will discredit or adorn the message of Jesus that we carry. But we, we speak about Jesus. Um, St. Francis of Assisi reportedly, maybe not, but reportedly said something that many Christians have taken a hold of, which is preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Which, of course, he has a point. And his, his point is that our lives should be such a clear demonstration of Christ that our people want to know what's, what's up with us. And our actions, they do matter. That's why we included those last two sentences. I mean, it's, it's hard to be a good witness for Christ when you're a cheat at your work or when you sue your neighbor for their dog peeing on your lawn. It's not, it's not the best witness, you know. But the truth is, words are necessary. Romans chapter 10 says, how will they believe without hearing? And how will they hear without a preacher, someone to speak verbally the message of Christ? So Paul says uh, earlier in chapter 5, he says, therefore, we persuade others. In our passage, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And again, maybe this will be helpful for anyone here who's not a Christian. I hope you see that Christianity actually seeks to strike a critical balance in our approach to you and to our other lost friends and neighbors. Because on the one hand, we assert that there is real truth. And on the other hand, we affirm your right to decide what you believe. Both of those things. We do seek to persuade you because we believe there's, there's a spiritual reality there really is a God that your most urgent need is to be reconciled to that God, but we have no interest in forcing you. 
trying to manipulate you or coerce you into our faith. We want you to respond to God on your own volition. And we think he's kind of set things up that way. We think he would have it no other way. So there's not a sword for us in this process. There's no laws that we want to make that would say, you all must believe like we believe. No, we don't want to use manipulative techniques to get you to say a prayer, sign a card, to sway you. Though we do earnestly seek to persuade you of your need for Jesus Christ, because we believe that's part of our role as ambassadors of Jesus, is to speak on his behalf, to implore you to be reconciled to God. So for, for those of us who are Christians, to speak the message of the gospel, it's part of the job description. It's right at the top to urge others to be reconciled to God. Now that said, these conversations usually don't happen all at once, where you get down on your knees and you just beg someone to be reconciled to God. I don't think it usually goes that way. And I think last year I gave you kind of 10 helpful steps that you might consider in sharing Christ with others. Uh, I added two more to the list uh, so that it could be a 12-step program, which just seemed more fitting. Um, but listen through these with me and think about where could you start? What could be your next step along the way with someone who's not a believing friend? So first, you can pray for your unbelieving friends and neighbors by name. Make a list. You could let people around you know that you are a Christian. Sometimes it's a great act of bravery just raising the flag. But you can let them know in a natural, unforced way. You can talk about your weekend, talk about your friends, talk about your life. Third, you can ask friends about their faith and just listen. Fourth, you can listen to your friends' problems. Maybe offer to pray for them as they share. Fifth, you can share your problems with others too and testify to how your faith helps you. Six, you could give them a book to read, especially if they have particular concerns or questions or issues. Seventh, you could share your own story. How's God met you in your need? Eighth, you could share the gospel message. I added this one, low-hanging fruit, super easy, pretty obvious. You could use a formal presentation of the gospel, like the story that George and Catherine Robinson talked with us about uh, just before Halloween. Or you can just in a moment of a conversation, look for a place that you could share something, the hope of Christ. Number nine, you could try to answer their objections and some of their questions. Number 10, you could invite them to a church event, which is one of the things actually we'll be talking about at next week's Vine Project prayer and workshop thing is how do church events and your own attempts to go to your neighbors in love go together and not compete with each other? How do we work as a team, as a church, to move towards others in love between the things we do here and that you do on your own? We wanna talk more about that. Also, coming up soon in Christmas, Christmas time, we're gonna have a Christmas play right here at North Wake, written by one of our own North Wakers that's gonna be really short, simple, but a great chance for you to invite lost friends and neighbors. So, more info on that next week and coming up soon. 11, you can offer to just read the Bible with them. If they seem interested or curious, well, let's read the Bible together. I know some North Wakers here who did that for years with their friends before they came to know Christ. 12, you could find some sort of exploratory course like Alpha or Questioning Christianity. Listen to it online or, or find somewhere that has one. 
So first and foremost, as ambassadors, we speak for Christ. But that's not all we do. There is more to being an ambassador. If you are an ambassador, you live in a foreign country, you don't just speak on behalf of the government, you live in the place where you serve. And you serve the place where you live. So second, we serve our unbelieving neighbors. Listen to this, our neighbors are not mere converts to be won. They are people to be loved. Recognizing that the most important conversations often move at the speed of trust, we want to develop genuine friendships with our non-Christian neighbors by opening our lives and homes. We want our presence in Wake Forest and the surrounding areas to be a genuine blessing to our community regardless of whether they share our beliefs or not. We want to serve our neighbors by leaning into the brokenness that we all experience as fellow humans, whether that be physical, mental, emotional, relational, or spiritual brokenness. And in doing so, we want to offer kind, practical support as well as the hope of the gospel. We want to be known as a place where skeptics, sinners, and sufferers are all welcomed and can encounter God. Now, it's kind of a long paragraph, sorry, but there's quite a bit here. So for sake of time, let me just break what I read into three categories for you. Uh, friendship, service, and welcome. Friendship, this means making space in our lives for people who aren't church folk and actually being their friends. Now this can be a challenge for many of us, myself the chief among them. As you become more involved in church life, Sometimes you can be swallowed up by it. But having genuine friendships and spiritual conversations with non-Christians is going to take time. So we must work at prioritizing that. But then second, service. We want to be of practical good to our town. In Jeremiah 29, uh, God tells Israel to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. There's a lot of great ways that we can serve our town. Many of you are already doing those things. A few of the ways that we band together to serve this town are through things like the Hope Counseling Center, where we provide free counseling to those in our community who have need of that. Another way would be through something like um, our Lily Moms Ministry that provides a moment of sanity, hot breakfast, childcare, and gospel content for moms in our community. Um, through our feed ministry, food pantry. Uh, pretty soon through the Mercy Health Clinic that's gonna start here on November 14th. I believe will be their first, their first go at a health clinic. We've had a team of people who have been working really hard to get this up and running, and it's, it's another way that we give kind, practical help to our community. So, friendship, service, and then welcome. We want to be a place where people from all backgrounds are welcomed here and can encounter God. I want that to affect the way that I teach. I want to teach in such a way that people who might not be Christians could come here and at least feel seen somewhat, somewhat understood, I hope. We want this to affect the way that we lead our services, even the way that we organize our campus. But perhaps most importantly, the way that you guys use the last 60 seconds after the service ends. Who do you look around for when our service closes? Do you look for people who you don't know? 
or maybe seem new or you suspect might be alone. I think this more than anything else will change the atmosphere of our gatherings to a place that is warm and welcoming. So those are a few ways we live as ambassadors for Christ by speaking about Jesus and serving Wake Forest and beyond. I mean, it's not just Wake Forest. I know some of you live like Youngsville, Raleigh. We could do the youth thing where you like raise your hand and shout for each place, but let's save that for another day. Um, Paul wants to end this section now that he's taught us about the motive for reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. He wants to remind us of the message of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing summary of our message. You have great transgressions, but Christ bore them all for you so that they might not be counted against you and that you might be the very righteousness of God, reconciled with him to know his eternal embrace. That's our message and that's what it cost Christ. He who knew no sin became sin. In 1957, uh, there were four men who were climbing the uh, 6,000 foot, nearly vertical north face in, in the Swiss Alps. Two of those four men uh, disappeared and were never found to this day. The other two climbers, two uh, guys from Italy, they were Italian, they were stuck on a narrow ledge about 1,000 feet from the summit. And the weather conditions turned bad and they were completely exhausted and they were likely just going to die uh, right, right there on that ledge. And the Swiss Alpine Club said it was far too dangerous to attempt any rescue condition, uh, mission in those conditions, so they forbade anyone from a trying. But there was a group of Swiss climbers that decided to try anyway. So they went to the top from the other side and lowered down a climber named Alfred Hellepart, a thousand feet down the 6,000 foot face by a thin cable to try to search out and find and rescue the climbers. And Hellepart, he wrote about his experience in a memoir. And he said, as I was lowered down the summit, my comrades up at the top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. For the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face of the Eiger. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face, falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me, made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the mist. I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from my terror was my mission to save the climbers below. You know, there, there are some things, maybe a few things, about our faith, about the Christian faith, 
that I can explain to you. And then there are some things about our faith that I can only marvel at. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I cannot explain that to you. What in the world does it mean that the perfect son of God dangled himself between heaven and hell for us? What would that have been like to experience the indescribable aloneness and darkness of being forsaken by the Father on the cross? What terrors did he feel to stare down and swallow the sin of the world and to literally bear hell in my place so that I could be reconciled to God, to be called the very righteousness of God. I don't know that I'll ever get my head around that. But this is our message, and it's beautiful. It's good news. It's ours to cherish, and it's ours to proclaim. So in love, we go to our neighbors who are near. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we do pray through the, the leading of your words, by the leading of the Holy Spirit that dwells among us and in us, that we would be the kind of church that is truly moved and motivated by the love of Christ to go in love to the people you've placed around us in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. You have put us there specifically to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And that is a great role for us. And, and yet it is too much, it is, it's overwhelming and in our own strength, we will not represent you as we should. But by your Holy Spirit, as you open our eyes to behold the love of Christ, you are able to move us in love to be less worried about what others think of us for being a Christian, to be less stingy with the time that we have, with the resources that you've given us. So move us by your Holy Spirit, by this message that we proclaim, to move out towards others in love. We pray all this through the matchless name of Jesus who gave himself for us. Amen.